Hello everyone, I'm here for another episode and today I have a very special guest. This will be my final podcast um, at the school, but um, I'd like to have Mr. Palfrey on, who is our head of school. And uh, the concept of the podcast, right, is that I talk to people I don't know very well. Um, And today I have on the head of school, who I unfortunately don't know very well, but hope to get to know better in this uh, time period. So yeah. If you'd like to just introduce yourself, say hello. <laughs> thank you. Now, this is John Palfrey, and I'm flattered to be on your podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, so I will start out the episode how I start every episode, um, where I say, huh, I think I know that kid, and then talk about the things that I think I've heard about you or know that you do on campus. This will obviously be a little different for you than the average student. Um, but yes, you are the head of school, of course. You um uh, attended Exeter that's true <laughs> and yep. then Harvard I believe for college, college and you yep. went to law school uh-huh. where Elizabeth Warren was your professor was, yeah. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is awesome I'm yeah, a big fan awesome. so um cool you can talk more about that I'm later if you'd to, like to yeah. um you have a son attending the school I do ninth grader um you live on campus of course in Phelps house um you teach a history course yep, alongside history. Jenny Elliott yes um our dean of students and um I'm sure there's more things that I've heard about you in passing, but I think it's, um, I remember on my tour of the school, I was told that you were a very well-liked head of school, so. Very kind. (laughs) That's uh, a thing I've heard about you, so. If there's anything on that list you'd like to talk about more or expand on, or you can talk about something else if you'd like, but, yeah. Thank you. Uh, No, I'm thrilled to be on your show, and I'm really grateful for those observations, all nice things and all (laughs) all true. uh, you mentioned one, which was uh, Elizabeth Warren being my teacher, which she was. Uh, and I think one thing that's important to think about in any educational institution is who your mentors are and who are mm-hmm. people who support you along the way. And with respect to now Senator, then Professor Warren, she was my uh, first term when I was at law school. She was my contracts teacher. And in a contracts class at Harvard Law School, at least at that time, you had about 100 students. and. She was amazing as a Socratic teacher, and she would get to every student really regularly. And so she just was extremely effective at reaching kids and, and pushing you very, very hard as a teacher. She was a no-nonsense contracts mm-hmm. professor. But I really admired her and, and um, sought her out, as, as mm-hmm. um, students do with teachers from time to time. And when a few years later I found myself on the faculty, she was somebody who took me out to lunch and I had been her former student, and she mm-hmm. was a fantastic, tough love mentor. Um, and there were two things that she told me at different points, different lunches, but in in really helpful way. Um, one was she told me the key to success on the Harvard Law School faculty was, in addition to all the things you're supposed to do with <laughs> teaching and being a good um, mentor to students and so forth, was that you absolutely had to publish. And mm-hmm. that if you didn't just start writing and let it go, you will never succeed in that way and I think for a lot of people they want to get something perfect like Mm -hmm. every article has to be perfect or every book has to be perfect she said forget that you just have to put it out there you have to run Mm -hmm. the risk of just putting out there and that's something that was very very helpful to have a senior and at that point she was tenured and I was not you know tell professor tell you this is what you just have to do Mm -hmm. and it was very freeing and helpful Um, the other thing she said to me a little bit later on when I was a professor I was relatively young, and some of my students were not that much younger than I was, and mm-hmm. in some cases actually older. And she said, you absolutely have to be Professor Palfrey. You have no mm-hmm. choice. You cannot let people call you John. You cannot yes. let people call you a nickname or whatever. You must be Professor so-and-so, mm-hmm. and I'm going to insist on this. Mm-hmm. And she w- so she was one of those people who gave really, really great advice and super helpful, things that I didn't necessarily 
intuitively agree with, but they were absolutely the right kinds of things you needed to know to succeed in an institution. So I'm delighted she's in the Senate and she's yeah. doing all the things she's doing. That's cool. That I can definitely see how her um, lessons to you are then reflected in her political career of yeah. just um, being very uh, saying whatever you need to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but also, I'm sorry if this question seems a little silly, but yeah. I'm not certain what contracts would be. Oh, um, that's not so. a silly question at all. So law school is interesting in that it's organized, particularly the first year, around some things that don't really make sense to people who are not lawyers. And you kind of get let into okay. a language that then you almost annoyingly can't get out of. Mm -hmm. So to be married to, as my wife was, a first year law student is actually, I'm sure, really annoying because <laughs> you have you take on this different language and you sort of you get totally wrapped up in it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, one of the first year courses is torts. Most people okay. don't know what a tort is. I've heard of it. My mother's a lawyer, so I've heard some lawyer language in my yes. life, but yeah. So, but even knowing the language, you often don't know what it is. It's yeah. basically a harm. So somebody okay. does a harm to somebody else. Um, so if somebody were to strike somebody else and cause something to happen mm -hmm. outside of the criminal realm, and you then were to sue them, that would be a tort. Your, okay. um, contracts are agreements between two people or two entities mm -hmm. or multiple entities, and how those things are adjudicated is the way that the course works. So let's imagine that you had entered into a contract with me to come on your podcast. Let's say this is a big <laughs> business, and you were paying your guests, just mm -hmm. for argument's sake, $1,000 to okay. be a guest. And you would then give me a contract. I would sign it. You would give me $1,000. And what I would give you back is this interview, mm -hmm. which you would then effectively sell with all the ads on your podcast, right. whatever it might be, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the, there are a zillion questions that come up around that contract. When is a contract a contract? When okay. can a contract be nullified? Mm -hmm. How can a contract be enforced if I break it? Right. So all sorts of things like that that fill up a course. And turned yeah. out that Professor Warren, now Senator Warren, was awesome at teaching about contracts. And it actually turns out to be way more interesting than it sounds on the space. I can see ways that it would be very no. interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so that's very, so would you say that that you enjoyed that course with her a lot? Was it because of her as a teacher or because of the subject material? Both for sure. Mm -hmm. You may have had this experience while you've mm -hmm. been here, which is if there's a teacher who you really like, admire some version of that, mm -hmm. and maybe intimidates you a tiny bit, <laughs> that you end up doing more work for her or for him mm -hmm. as a teacher. And Professor Warren was that person to okay. me, and I think every other member of my class, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, there were whatever, how many courses we had going, you would spend way more time preparing because mm -hmm. you knew that you would be on the stand and she would be asking these hard questions right. and you really wanted to get them right. So you, yeah. would, you would spend, so she was kind of that kind of teacher to me. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, yeah, and I mean, this may be some insider scoop, but are you still in contact with her? Sure, although mm -hmm. I don't, I try not yeah. to bug her. You know, she's right, kind of busy. But, she's a celebrity, um, basically. She's a total celebrity. Yeah. And her, um, uh, someone I also correspond with is her husband's on the Harvard Law School mm -hmm. faculty still. Um, his name is Professor Mann, and he's a totally wonderful legal historian, and so mm -hmm. I've also tried to stay in touch with him as well. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah um, so obviously you have passion for law, but history as well yeah. um, is some, something you educate in. So, um, yeah, I guess, do you see a connection between the two of those, or um, do you have a preference? <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Yes, a huge connection between the two, and I like them both, so I have preferences. Yeah. That's interesting. I never thought about it in those terms. <laughs> When I was finishing college, I basically thought I would go do a PhD in American civilization, which is American history, mm -hmm. basically. And it was the version that Harvard had, and I had talked to professors about it, and they said, yes, you, c you know, we'll mm -hmm. admit you to come back and do this PhD if you want, which was very nice. And so I thought about it 
I had always kind of thought that would be where I'd go, but I've also always been interested in the law. Mm-hmm. So those two things have been kind of in my head as the two things I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And after college, I went and, and did a job in government and politics, which was fun. Um, and I kind of looked around, and I realized mm-hmm. that most of the people that were in jobs I was interested in had law degrees, and not yeah. so many had PhDs in American <laughs> civilization. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I made kind of a deal with myself, and I mm-hmm. ended up going to graduate school in American history uh, at Cambridge in England mm-hmm. and did an MPhil in, uh, in history, which was an unbelievably wonderful time. Like, it was just fantastic intellectually, and it was, it was really wonderful thing to do in my uh, early 20s and my wife and I got engaged when we were in England so it was all there was lots of nice things happened out of it nice. and so I have very warm feelings about mm-hmm. my graduate studies in history if that makes sense yeah came back to the U.S. and ended up going to law school and that was mm-hmm. all fine but I, I guess I still hold them both in my heart and my mind <laughs> in, in ways and being yeah. able to teach U.S. history here is a total joy it's an unbelievably mm-hmm. great part of my experience yeah day to day yeah, um, a quick story about Mr. Palfrey. One time, uh, my history teacher was not able to teach a class, so Mr. Palfrey was my substitute. And um, you, I remember really enjoying the class. Um, it was We were specifically looking at Theodore Roosevelt, who happens to be an ancestor of yours. Um, and so you brought in some books from your personal collection that were previously um, in Theodore Roosevelt's library. So, um, yeah, I guess my question would then be, you come from a very historic family just in a in the American civilization, if you will. Um, so, yeah, um, I guess also then coming to Phillips Academy, which has a sort of similarly illustrious position in American history, like if you um, have thought about that or if that like is meaningful to you or if that shapes how you work. Super nice question. And I've never thought about it in that mm-hmm. way, truthfully. I am acutely aware of being the 15th head of school here. Right. And the idea that there will be 15 more and mm-hmm. you know, whatever, that this is an institution that hopefully will extend a long time into the future. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact, the reason I think it's such a good question is I see the institution as deeply related to the American Republic. So mm-hmm. the fact that it was founded in 1778, right. two years into a revolution, yeah. every time I think about it, it strikes me as bonkers. Can you I imagine know. these people, this family, saying we're going to start a school? We're in the middle mm-hmm. of a war and we're going to start right. a school. Yeah. So there's there had to have been something mm-hmm. about that historic moment. Mm-hmm and the founding of this school that are deeply, deeply connected. And of course, having George Washington Hall and the fact that George Washington and and Sam Phillips were close and that he came here and so forth, there are lots of Mm -hmm. personality kind of reasons why they get connected. But I think there's a deeper connection even than that, which I think is a theoretical one, Mm -hmm. theoretical historical one, which is I think that this family was thinking for this republic that we're starting, which Mm -hmm. is going to be a new experiment in how countries work, we need a different kind of school. And we need a school that is going to be youth from every quarter, and it's mm-hmm. going to be knowledge and goodness, and it's going right. to be non-city, and it's going to be finisa regina pendant, and mm-hmm. it's going to be you know the great and real business of living. All these things that right. we have in our charter, they were really thinking about how do we create, mm-hmm. maybe in a flawed way at the beginning, and maybe a maybe a slightly better way now, how do we create a group of young people who are going to go out and mm-hmm. lead this country and yeah. and the world, hopefully. Um, and so in that sense, I do see these as really, mm-hmm. I, I see myself as a bit player and all that, but but I see the school and American history as really interestingly interconnected. Yeah. I know. And I've, uh, I do work duty in the archives. Um, and so I've thought a lot about the um, historical, like, kind of locus, I guess, mm-hmm. of the academy. And um, it's just so many fascinating things have occurred here. Um, thinking about, like you mentioned, our connection to the revolution, but also throughout 
like American history. Um, in the Civil War, there was training on the Great Lawn yeah. for um, soldiers. And uh, there was another moment I was going to connect to. But yes, as you mentioned, George Washington um, visited the school, planted an elm tree that oh. we um, is still growing. Uh, his nephews attended school here. So I don't know. There's just so many. It, it's kind of crazy to think about. There's a photo of Theodore Roosevelt walking down the um, the Vista, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pretty fascinating. That's but awesome. I could I could think about that for a long time. Um, I'm so glad you've done work doing the archives. That oh, a, yeah. It's a really great it's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. So now I'm going to ask you a question. It's mm-hmm. always a little silly. I know you haven't listened to the podcast before, but basically, um, for an example, I might say The Office or The Office. Uh-huh. So I would ask you about if you've ever seen the TV show The Office um, or your first office job. Yes. So the one I'm going to do for uh-huh. you, I don't know what adults watch on TV so much, <laughs> but um, I know that my mom was a big fan of The Good Wife. Uh-huh. So I thought I would say The Good Wife yeah. or The Good Wife, where you could talk about the TV show stall- starring Juliana Margulies, yes. or you could talk about your wife, who um, is a wonderful presence on campus. So. Awesome. Thank you. Now, So the truth is I don't watch all that much TV, yeah. and I have not seen The Good Wife. I'm generally aware of it being a show but i have, would have mm-hmm. nothing to say for the office it turns out i haven't myself watched so much but one of my children has been very into the office okay. so there's been a lot of the office in the background mm-hmm. hinging in my life so i, yeah. I probably <laughs> could actually say in a passive way more about that mm-hmm. than, um but uh the good wife as in Catherine carter who happens to be mm-hmm. my wife is a much easier topic and a yeah. wonderful <laughs> topic thank you for acknowledging her presence on campus um she's a great person and someone i love very much and has been a terrific mom and wife um, she's also an educator in her own right. So mm-hmm. um, we met in college, and she has since uh, gone into graduate school in early childhood education and has taught in the Cambridge Public Schools and right now is working uh, in a uh, nonprofit organization in Cambridge and Somerville, which goes into the school system and to, to classrooms, particularly for younger kids like kindergarten and first grade. And it's called the Beautiful Stuff Project. Mm. And the theory behind it is that kids at an early age don't do enough unstructured play. So okay. they're not given the time and the space to just play with things and to create mm-hmm. uh, with their hands and, and not to be uh, kind of structured in their learning. And teachers love to have the Beautiful Stuff Project come in for a class period and have an expert, in this case, my wife, with these materials, which are just recycled materials that have come (laughs) from the community, and make things in a way that, there's a curriculum behind it, but a very light one, and that allows for kids to uh, create and to enjoy the process of learning. And it's a very joyful thing, and it's been uh, really, really interesting, I think, for her to uh, be a part of that little tiny organization, but, but really touching kids in a nice way. Yeah, that's wonderful. Wow, that's very cool. So um, I know you are in a bit of a rush. Um, I think we still have about 10 minutes. Absolutely. Um, don't, don't feel rushed. All yeah. right, great. Um, so, yeah, there's um, lots of things happening on campus. I'm a yes. senior. I'm very nice. conscious. Tomorrow is um, Senior Sunrise, yeah. where all the seniors will get together and watch the sunrise together, uh, if you can wake up in time yep. for it. Um, but so it's just sort of... Um, I guess I'd like to ask you how you think about um, like each class mm. moving through the school. Um, you've been the head of school since uh, 2013. That's my sixth year as head of school, so I get okay. I must have started in 2012. 2012. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and anyways, so you've seen uh, many classes already move through the school. So I guess it, it, do you have any um, things that you feel reminiscent about 
about around this time or you're nice to say that now i do i've I've always found commencement to be kind of a hard time actually Mm -hmm. it's it's the definition of better bittersweet in some ways for me Mm -hmm. which is i'm so happy for you that you are going on to do lots of things that will be wonderful and Mm -hmm. you will hopefully stay connected and come back to school and all the rest but i'm excited for what will come ahead for you but i will miss you and Mm -hmm. the the each class has its own character for sure um the uh, the very first class that i got to know which was 2012 2013 class of 2013 Mm -hmm. um you know i had a particular connection to um uh, this particular class of 2018 i know i will always be particularly connected to we've had a hard year in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. you've also you know demonstrated great resilience and strength and um, care for one another and lots of things that i will always remember so you know i'm i i know that i will miss you know just the pa- the faces I passed on the pathway, and I will miss the students I've taught directly, or the mm-hmm. students I've coached, or um, or seen in various ways. And and yet at the same time, I'm I'm thrilled for you. Yeah, yeah. I feel similarly. I'm very hopeful for the future mm-hmm. and what it will bring. But um, I was talking with some kids before class the other day about how it'll be so strange to not have all of your same acquaintances anymore. Mm-hmm. Like your your close friends, you'll still stay in contact yes, with presumably, right. but everybody just sort of around that you feel vaguely friendly towards mm-hmm. will be you know somewhere else and you won't see them as much so pretty pretty sad in certain ways but um yeah it's a good insight i I, dr- I truly believe because of these experiences mm-hmm. being so intense you will stay in touch with your good friends and they may yeah. well be your best friends for the rest of your life and mm-hmm. that's awesome and i think with social media and otherwise you may stay in touch yeah. kind of as a class a little bit more perhaps than previous generations mm-hmm. the only thing i will say about the acquaintance piece mm-hmm. is i would be well I think it is likely, I would say mm. it's certain, but should you stay involved with the school and come back to reunions and stay mm-hmm. connected through whatever means, I would guess that you will pick up more from those acquaintances over time than you possibly expect. And, you know, it's just having watched reunions here in particular where people will meet somebody, they will have been married before, they'll meet somebody at the reunion that they had sort of known a little bit, and then they will get married to that person, like <laughs> 50 years after graduating here. Like, it wow. happens with more regularity than you would think. That's and funny. It, that's a dramatic version, obviously. Yeah. But but in even a uh, less dramatic one might be just that you will realize you'll find yourself in Chicago or Shanghai or wherever you might be, mm-hmm. and you'll find somebody who you remember passing in Presky Commons mm-hmm. or whatever, and that person will actually be working next door to you, and then you'll become friends or, or work colleagues mm-hmm. or something. So I expect more of that will happen than you think. Okay. I'm nice excited. Yeah. Nice <laughs> um, cool. And also, so one of the things I might have left out unintentionally from the list of things I know mm-hmm. about you is you also um, worked as the director of a library. I was, yes. Yes. That's true, that's true. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's currently a thing um, in the library that's a collection of books that are on your bookshelf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I always check it out. Um, oh, I'm nice also thing. reading Lincoln and the Bardo. Oh, yeah. So, right. Quite a yeah. Um, but anyways, so yeah, the library at school happens to be going, um, undergoing some huge renovations. It will be next um, year, yeah. So yeah, I guess uh, if you'd like to talk about your lib- libratorial experience. Sure. It's not a word. So I'm actually not a librarian by training. Mm-hmm. As we've talked about, I was a lawyer by training and studied history and so forth. Well, there's sort of an unusual thing that sometimes happens in mm-hmm. universities, which is sometimes professors who have an interest in an area will become responsible for a library. Mm -hmm. And so while I was a professor at Harvard Law School, I became a vice dean of the school with Mm -hmm. responsibility as the director of their law library. 
And it turns out the Harvard Law School Library is an amazing place. It's mm-hmm. worth going to, whether or not you study the law. It is the world's largest academic law library. It had about 100 staff at the time. It has just zillions wow. of materials and is just wonderful, wonderful um, things to study in space. It's a really, truly extraordinary library with extraordinary people in it. Mm-hmm. So it was a really, really fun job. And the good news is there are people who actually know how to run a library who are there. And so I was, you know, maybe it's a little bit more like being the chairman as opposed Mm -hmm. to a director or, you know, that kind of thing in the sense that I was, I had responsibility for it and I had to, Mm -hmm. I had to lead in various ways, but I also knew that I wasn't a trained librarian and you have Mm -hmm. to be quite cautious, I think, and appropriate humility is Mm -hmm. important in all aspects of life, but particularly when you don't actually have the credibility (laughs) to do it. Um, But it, it was a, it was a great thing to have done and I really enjoyed it and I have, since become quite interested in libraries as institutions mm-hmm. and their role within schools or universities. I've also been one of the founders of something called the Digital Public Library of America, which mm-hmm. is an effort to digitize our the collections, in essence, that we have mm-hmm. of cultural and historic and political uh, history in the United States and to put it online and to connect it all up, which has been really fun. So I've been quite interested in the combination of physical and digital libraries as we turtle mm-hmm. into this increasingly digital age. Yes, and you have written some books similar that's to this true, subject. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember Born Digital came out yeah. a few years ago, and a new book of yours, Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, yes, came year, out yeah. this year. Oh, you're so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so you've written a couple books. Um, is there anything that you learned while writing these books? or? Sure. Actually, it's yeah. one of the benefits of writing books, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, one of the books I wrote was called Bibliotech, which was about libraries mm-hmm. and in a digital age, and that in part came out of the experience of running a library mm-hmm. and helping to found the, the Digital Public Library of America. So absolutely, when you are doing something, to have a book project is also a really neat way to mm-hmm. think more deeply maybe about something and to reflect on the thing that you are working on at a given time. Mm-hmm. Um, with Born Digital, which I've now actually rewritten a couple of times, it first came out in 2008 and the most recent edition is 2016, that's been a wonderful experience of both learning about young people and how they're growing up in a technological world but also, as I think about being a parent, how do mm-hmm. I parent in the way that I want to, and um, and par- you know partner with my wife, obviously in that way, mm-hmm. and then to come back to it when the publisher came and said it's still selling, and we really like you to re up, you know, to rewrite it mm-hmm. for a new edition. That was super fun to go back and mm-hmm. say, okay, what are the things that have changed since that right. time? And I actually hired two students from Andover, mm-hmm. a woman named Zainab Aina, who's a student, and then uh, Wan Wu Kim, another student, and they spent the summer at the research center that I work at at Harvard called the Berkman Klein Center, mm-hmm. the Youth and Media Lab, and they spent the summer going through the old edition and striking out all the things that don't make any <laughs> sense and helping me update it for mm-hmm. the 2016 edition with my yeah. co-author, Boris Gosser, which was really fun. So, you know, every time it said MySpace, you know, <laughs> right. did Snap make more sense? Or, you know, every time mm-hmm. it said Second Life, you know, how do you talk, think about oh, immersive technology? Life. Like yeah. all those things that mm-hmm. now seem so silly. Right. But when we were writing the book in 2005, 2007, mm-hmm. you know, they were relevant. important and relevant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and then Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces came out this year. This fall, yeah. Um, yes, and so I guess that probably stemmed from your like experience as a teacher mm-hmm. and as the head of school. Yes. Um, would you like to describe to the listeners what that book is about? Oh, you're so nice, yes. Um, so to your first question, it certainly stems from mm-hmm. the experience of being in a classroom here and leading, leading a, uh, an institution. But it also reflects just my thinking about the the broader republic and, and right. the uh, the scene more on college campuses than here, mm-hmm. actually, in, a, in an acute way. So I'm about to say some critical things that actually aren't as critical of Andover, maybe, as they're going to sound. So okay. when I when I look at other places, I think they have it sort of worse, and I actually think we're maybe doing a little better. But the concern that struck me 
was that we were pitting against each other two things that are both important. Mm -hmm. So I saw in these debates, um, you either were on the left and you favored diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. or you were on the right and you favored free speech. That often I think it is set up that way right. in a way that I actually don't think is constructive mm -hmm. because I actually think we need definitely need both two degrees. Um, and there are times when they are in conflict and you have to figure out which one has to trump the other. Right. Obviously, there are instances of that. The hardest version is hate speech. We can mm -hmm. talk about the specifics of it. But the core of the argument is to say, intellectually, our institutions need to have a degree of ability to talk across difference, right? Mm -hmm. And that actually is both about diversity, equity, inclusion, and it's about free speech, right? We right. need to be able to say, you and I disagree on something politically. I don't know what it mm -hmm. is, but let's um, trust that there's something, <laughs> right? Yeah, we need to be able to talk about yeah. it. And, and, and I might change my mind. You might change your mind. Mm -hmm. If we don't do that, mm -hmm. our republic isn't going to work, much right. less our, our schools. Likewise, what I think that hasn't been figured out as well yet is I think we're at a different place in mm -hmm. our schools and in our country relative to the diversity that we have in these institutions. And we do have to think differently about the diverse experiences that kids and older adults have coming into these environments mm -hmm. and that it creates something different than was true 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the answer is not simply to have the rules always just persist in the way that they, they have. So I, the, the book is really an argument about trying to ensure that both of those things can mm -hmm. coexist and then grappling with some of the hard problems that fall out of that, which is to say sometimes it's not easy to reconcile those, those issues. Right. Yeah, and that's definitely so interesting to think about in the context of learning, mm -hmm. right? Because um, it's all, you know, all dedicated to changing your mind, yeah. right? To expanding it, presumably. Yes. <laughs> um, but so I've, uh, I'm very um, news conscious. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you've been following the election between Stacey Abrams and Stacey Edwards mm -hmm. in um, Georgia, mm -hmm. I want to say. Um, but so uh, one of the core like elements of this um, election was basically they had two different strategies where uh, Stacey Abrams was trying to engage um, mostly people of color that yeah. hadn't voted in the previous uh, elections. And uh, Stacey Edwards was more focused on trying to um, pull back some of the people that were Democratic but then voted for Trump yeah, in 2016. white and maybe a little more centrist. Right, yeah. yes. So um, Stacey Abrams won. Um, and so I don't know, that's just sort of a, an interesting thing because I've heard different reports that say mm -hmm. basically people don't change their minds. Mm -hmm. um, but so I guess I'd like to hear what you think about that and then like in the context of school. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just like how hard it is to get people to reconsider their positions politically. Absolutely. It's a wonderful, wonderful question. I think in schools, particularly high schools, when you arrive at age 13 or 14 mm -hmm. and you graduate when you're 17, 18, 19, that is a period of time when I believe you are making up so many aspects of your identity. You mm -hmm. are thinking so deeply about who you are and your place in the right. world, how you relate to other people, how you relate to ideas, that we need to create spaces that allow you both to explore specific identities where you might need a safe space. Mm -hmm. In other words, let's just imagine a student is trying to decide their sexuality, as mm -hmm. an example. I think it is totally appropriate for us to have safe spaces where that right. person can be with other people who are exploring similar things, and they're mm -hmm. simply not going to be criticized for right. something, right? That's so important. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we also need to ensure that we don't have environments where you can only have one political viewpoint or mm -hmm. you therefore or you get kicked out of the classroom right or whatever right. and those are when we think about brave spaces that's a little bit of uh, of a mm -hmm. different idea and that people need to be able to 
push one another gently and appropriately and respectfully and be pushed themselves in <coughs> order to grow uh, in their mind. And so that's really the argument in the context of a high school. <coughs> it's a little more complicated in the case of a university when <coughs> it is um, some of the big state institutions as an example, and they must <coughs> honor the First Amendment under the uh, jurisprudence. Right. And so that creates a particular <coughs> dynamic that administrators have to deal with, and, and we've seen that play out over the last few years. Um, but I still think in the context of a university, there should be environments that are mm -hmm. like a kitchen. They are places that are uh, are safe and able for people to explore mm -hmm. certain ideas, and then also you need to be able to handle the public square and to mm -hmm. be out in um, uh, in a way that approximates either a workplace or mm -hmm. the the town square or a, you know a political environment. And I think the reason I'm so focused on this issue is mm -hmm. if we get it right in our schools, I think we will get it more right out in the Republic, right? Mm -hmm. And that I think over time, even if it is hard to have some people change their minds, I think mm -hmm. we do change our minds. I think if you look at this country, you know, over its 240 some years that right. it's been going, uh, it has changed enormously. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it probably doesn't change as quickly as it needs to in some mm -hmm. domains. We had slavery for too long. We didn't mm -hmm. let women have the vote for too long, right? There right. are lots of examples we could come up with. Marriage equality comes about in, mm -hmm. you know, a ridiculously late stage in our, right. our history. And those things did happen, right? Mm -hmm. we, d we, have, we have been able to, in many, many respects, improve the country, and, uh, and I, think that I think it will happen, but it does require an ability for people to communicate, and particularly mm -hmm. across differences. Yeah. Um, oh, so I guess I'd like to ask you another question. I get in the context of school, what do you think are the differences between censorship and social repercussions? Mm. Because um, at, on our campus, there um, is the State of the Academy, which is yes. a survey run by the Philippian. Um, and one of the responses um, was that I think 90% of conservative students on mm -hmm. campus feel that they are censored. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I, I don't necessarily know that that censorship is occurring, like, right. um, but there are definitely are traceable like social repercussions mm -hmm. that conservative students are experiencing. So I guess I'd like your thoughts on that. I think the answer to your question is yes. Mm -hmm. So if I understand where you're going with it, mm -hmm. there is a distinction, I think an important one, between what censorship is, and mm -hmm. history has given us many, many lessons of this, whether it's you know, from hundreds of years ago in lots and lots of countries, basically everywhere, where mm -hmm. the state or the king or whoever was in charge, maybe a queen, would say, you can't say that. And <laughs> it was actually literal censorship through to the communists censoring right. lots of things, to yep. China right now, yeah. on this very moment, censoring mm -hmm. what you can say on the internet and how yeah. it gets filtered and so forth. There's, there's formal censorship that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't believe we have that form of censorship on our campus. Mm -hmm. So I think students who check that box probably haven't done their history, right? <laughs> right. There is something called self-censorship. Right. And that often is driven by social repercussions or okay. the fear of social repercussions, mm -hmm. right? And sure, I'll be totally straightforward. This is a much more left campus than it is, right? Mm -hmm. That is true of students, it's true of adults, it's true of actually most of academia. Yeah. In these elite environments, certainly. Um, and realize that some students, particularly conservative students, often feel that if they say something that mm -hmm. outs them as a conservative, that it will harm their grade, mm -hmm. as an example. Or they will be looked at nastily by somebody when they walk past the, them on the paths. Mm -hmm. Or they will be shouted down in an environment. And I think mm -hmm. that's in that way, if that's true, to the extent that's true, we haven't mm -hmm. gotten that right. 
which is, to my mind, we should at this school be welcoming of a very broad range of, of political viewpoints, and we should engage with them. And I think some of the people I most admire on this campus actually are students who have viewpoints out of the norm, but who mm -hmm. are able to engage across difference. And I think those people deserve our congratulation in a way, even mm -hmm. though we may disagree with them. Um, and you know, I think any student who asks me, I will tell them, roughly speaking, I'm a garden variety Massachusetts <laughs> liberal Democrats, you know, left of center. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not. I, I'll tell you where I stand on right. on anything. Um, but I hugely respect kids who come from a very different perspective and are able to stand their ground and or engage in a conversation with mm -hmm. me or others about a political, you know, viewpoint that that they have. So, and we need to get better at that. We are we are not mm -hmm. as good as we should be at that. Um, on this campus or elsewhere, but it's not censorship, I don't think. At least, yeah. I mean, having written a fair amount about censorship, that's not my interpretation mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, I guess um, what are ways you see uh, that we can move past that? Because mm -hmm. a lot of the um, the the place where self-censorship is stemming from, like that's very hard to get students to stop doing that, yeah. um, especially in such a polarizing age where mm -hmm. conservatism is pretty much directly equated with um, lots of racist ideology, right. lots of um, homophobic, sexist ideology. Um, and so yeah, I, I, I understand and agree. I just, I don't know how it would, uh, how things could change to get students to stop shooting dirty glances mm -hmm. at, at others. Well, yeah. one thing you always have to say is, you know, in our mm -hmm. lives, we will be the recipient of some dirty glances, right? right? And and certainly as a head of school, and, you know, I get those all the time in various <laughs> ways for lots of reasons um, from anybody, you know, mm -hmm. parents who are upset about a decision or alumni or, or students who are upset. Yeah. But like, I know that's right. sure part of the job mm -hmm. for some people that's harder than others to take. Right. And from the position of strength and privilege that I have and the mm -hmm. unlikeliness that I'm going to get fired or whatever for si saying something like that, right. I have to be able to withstand that. And everybody, to a degree, mm -hmm. has to withstand that, and that yeah. that is part of it. Yeah. Um, you're quite right, though, also to focus on, you know, is it possible that we could maybe reduce the mm -hmm. dirty glares and, and at least to some people um, maybe be more welcoming in, mm -hmm. in, in our modes? The tricky part, you are pushing on the difficult paradox, which I think mm -hmm. of as the paradox of tolerance, Yeah. which is those of us who preach tolerance, and I do, mm -hmm need to insist upon tolerance in others to a degree. Mm -hmm. And to what degree must the tolerance tolerate the intolerance? That's right. a really hard paradox. It's mm -hmm. been a hard paradox for a long time. Lots yep. of smart people have written about it well, way before <laughs> I thought about it. So, um, and the answer in my view is you do have to tolerate much more than we do. Mm -hmm. I would say most students don't tolerate other viewpoints as much as mm -hmm. they ought to. However, there are also points which you have to say, stop, I'm not gonna tolerate this. Mm -hmm. So. You know, as an example, if a student group said we would like to host uh, some neo-Nazis to walk across <laughs> this campus, I'm yeah. going to say no, mm -hmm. right? right? They might be able to mm -hmm. do that downtown under the First yeah. Amendment, right? The ACLU would you know, right. fight for them. Exactly, yeah. and there's a case called Skokie that looks at this, mm -hmm. but not here. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say that right. I don't tolerate that. That's yeah. so intolerant that mm -hmm. that's over a line. Mm -hmm. But for somebody to say we are not willing to have a conservative Christian student who grew up in the United States South mm -hmm. say something in a classroom about their view, let's say, of abortion, mm -hmm. I think that would be a huge mistake for mm -hmm. us to say that can't be said on campus. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever that view. I'm right. making up a particular example that might or might not be an apt one. Mm -hmm. and I don't know of a particular instance of that happening. This <laughs> right, is not right. like pointing a finger at anybody. Mm -hmm. But I think we you know, or immigration or other things that are very, very mm -hmm. tricky. They are lightning rods. They are emotional. Yeah. Um, have know, a lot of personal connections. Have personal for connections. Students. Exactly yeah. right. So women's right to choose, I think, mm -hmm. for, you know, 
all women should be concerned about that, but mm -hmm. all of us as citizens should be cared about that. Right. With immigration, you know, uh, many of us know people who mm -hmm. have had issues with immigration in this right. country and, and have, have vulnerability associated yeah. with that. And a lot of our students are immigrants. <laughs> yeah. Right. So without pointing fingers in mm -hmm. any direction, we need to get better at right. being able to talk about those things even when it's emotional mm -hmm. and when it's challenging and to, and to seek to do it in ways that are maybe a, a little bit fewer dirty looks and maybe a little <laughs> right. bit more empathy, compassion, understanding where the other person is coming from. Mm -hmm. I realize that sounds a little namby-pamby, but I actually think it's sort of true, right, that, yeah. that we need to be better at doing it. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you thank so you. much for coming on so my nice podcast. Um, and yeah, if there's any final remarks you have, um, feel free to speak out. <laughs> thank you. Well, it's a, it's, you can it's publish really your remarks. You. Thank <laughs> you. Well, I'm most of all, just I'm grateful that you have done this podcast and invited me on it and for all the great things you've done while you've been a student. So thank oh, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, awesome. everyone. Bye.